Father, I just thank you today for the opportunity to be up here. I thank you that I steward the word appropriately. And Lord God, I just want to thank you for all the women in the generations past whose shoulders I stand on today who have been the steward of your word and your practices throughout generations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's kind of funny. I saw the younger kids go to Sunday school, and I thought, wow. It reminded me when I was younger, and we had the kids' table and the adult table. And I thought, today I get to eat at the adult table. (laughs) I'm not eating at the kids' table today. Um, So when Aaron asked me to speak on Women Today, I was excited. Um, I like to serve any way I can. After everybody leaves for church, John and I are still picking up goldfish off the floor and picking glue off the table and vacuuming the floor. And, and actually, I'm not being fake when I say I just love that. I love serving. I love being a part of this community. I believe in this church. I believe that what we have here is a rising tide that is going to take over this, this city. It's going to take over this nation. And um, to be a part of that is such a privilege and such an honor. And to be up here at the adult table is, uh, is really a, a, a blessing to me. When uh, he told me that I was speaking, though, it, it's kind of hard for me because I really am shy and awkward with adults. I've taught for the last 15 years middle school kids, and I love it. I'm in, I'm in my element when I'm with middle school kids because I really don't trust my mouth. And if I say something rude or rebellious or, or um, off-color or something that's really wrong, they, they applaud it. They love to be rebellious and rude and off-color. So <laughs> if I say something wrong, they just think I'm cool. But if I say it with adults, there's something wrong with me. You know, I'm, I'm weird or... No, they're adults and they Yeah, that's right. They're adults and they need to get over it. So... Um, it, it's kind of hard for me to stand up in front of, um, of adults. Um, so, but when Aaron asked me, I got literature and I started reading because I love research. I love to read and I love to um, see what other people are saying. I like to look at historical value of what they, they have to say. And so I delved right in. I came up with my PowerPoint. And last night, I started getting really stressed and hyperventilating, and it's fun. I'm telling you the truth that God can speak to you when you're hyperventilating. <laughs> you know, I'm sitting there freaking out, and God's saying, you know what, Jackie, it's not that easy. I mean, it's not, it is easy. This is easy. He says, just think. Think about the plight of Eve. Think of her legacy. Think about poor Eve. And so I started thinking about Eve and what she's gone through over the many years. So let's look at Eve. Think of Eve. She was created in the image of God. She was given free reign to prosper and take dominion in the garden. She had freedom. She was with um, a person that actually was lonely without her. She was his strength. Um, Apparently, she didn't have to use the first 15 minutes of her morning trying to figure out what she was going to wear, right? (laughs) Sometimes that's the most stressful part of our day. Um... Then one fateful day came along, a weak moment for her. She had a serpent come in the garden and convince her that she could be like God. And she took that advice. She ate from the tree of the fruit of good and evil or the knowledge of good and evil. She caused her husband to sin. And because of that decision, she got kicked out of her home. She was disgraced by her husband and by herself. She was disgraced by God. Her labor became harder. Her life completely changed. And I thought about that. What would I must have felt 
to make that one decision that changed humanity for thousands and thousands of years to change your life that much. I mean, I've had things change in my life, but I have never screwed up humankind, right? I've never done that. Um, then um, also she was um, held in historical all the way thousands of years from when she lived. She's held up as being a woman who's a temptress, uh, someone that's easily stayed and in, swayed into wrongdoing, someone with lower intelligence. She was the destruction of mankind. She's been depicted in art and literature as almost a um, ungodly prostitute or um, she was deemed in disgrace throughout all this time. And when you think about Eve, it, my heart goes out to her because, and, and you know, I don't think right sometimes because when I thought about Eve, my heart should have been really, and it was. I was sympathetic with her, but it brought on a commercial in my head. Um, dang those commercials. But uh, it brought me thinking about the Lifeline commercial where you have the elderly woman lying on the ground and she's like, help me, I can't get up. And, but that, in this case, in the commercial, when she says, help me, I've fallen and I can't get up, you have the person on the other line saying, we'll get an ambulance to you. An ambulance comes, the family comes, they get her up, and she's restored in the commercial. The problem with Eve, however, is she fell, and when she said, help me, I've fallen, I can't give up, we've never come to her aid. In fact, we've rubbed her nose in her um, disgrace and in her problems. So uh, I decided to title today as it's time to redeem me for help. I've fallen and I can't give up, get up. So let's start about what God has said about Eve and why she was created. When we look in Genesis, the very first mention of Eve is in Genesis 1, 26. So we're going to go there. Okay, it says in Genesis 1:26, then God said, "Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish in the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth." So God created man in His own image, in the image of God He created him, male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, "Be fruitful and multiply." Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish in the sea, over the birds in the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. When I read this, of course you want to point out that God didn't just create male here. He created male and female. But he gives them a command, and he tells them to be fruitful and multiply. So in the past, when I've looked at this verse, fruitful to me means just have lots of babies. We need to populate the earth, so we need to get busy. But when you think about it, fruitful has many different meanings. And when we look at the image of God and what God did on creation, he just didn't create a man and a woman. He created flowers. He created spiders with six eyes and um, different butterflies and plants. His creative part of God was totally explained through creation. So we always tell the little guys, If you really want to know who God is, look at creation. Look at how diverse our creative world is. So I truly believe that when God gave that commandment, be fruitful and multiply, he wasn't just talking about kids. He was talking about multiply your thoughts, your feelings, multiply your your, um, 
Well, everything we've done in our art, our technology, our buildings, think about all the architecture, all of the thoughts that have been co- the collective um, of our society and humankind. He was asking Eve to be fruitful in that as well, to be fruitful in her leadership, to be fruitful in her words, to be fruitful in her creations, in her uh, building, in her technology, in her innovation. He tells us to fill the earth and subdue it, um, to have dominion over the fish in the sea and over the birds of the air. This was a command given to Eve. This is her in her raw form. This is how God intended women to be. So then if we move further into Genesis 2, we find the actual appearance into Eve. And after God said everything was good, he created the plants, he created the animals, he created Adam, and he said everything was good. The only time he said this is not good was when he saw Adam in the garden and he saw that Adam was lonely. And he says this is not good. So the Lord God said it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper helper suitable for him. So when you look at how God created Eve, he created her out of Adam's side. He didn't create her out of Adam's foot or Adam's hand. He created her out of Adam's side. And it says that he made her to be a helper suitable to him. Well, when you look at the word helper, we add our cultural context to helper. And it reminded me when I was little and I had to help my dad whatever project he was on, which involved tools. And he would call us over, which we hated. We tried to hide, but we couldn't. And he'd call us over, and we were the tool hander person. You know, that was our job. So Dad would tell us, oh, go get that uh, thingamajig. Or, you know, we had to learn a whole new vocabulary. What is a thingamajig, and how many different applications does it have? I had to learn fractions. What's three-sixteenths or three-eighths, and what's a wrench? And, and then, of course, we had to know where they were at. And so our typical job for a helper was to find him his tools, hand it to him, and then clean up after him when he was done. And so when we look at the word helper here, that's what we're thinking this means. But if we look at the original Hebrew, we look at it's not what it means. So when Eve was created out of the side of Adam, they look at the word helper as easy E-R, which means to be strong. And it's put together with another word that means to be adequately strong enough to provide aid. Um, Many passages that you see, the same word is used in parallel, and it really denotes strength and power. It's actually a military term that means that if you are fighting side by side with your brother, you are going to have their back. It's kind of like, you know, your marine term when you say don't leave a brother behind. And no, I see this really, really strong when we do offering and I go up with my husband we've got our arms arm in arm and what we are putting in the basket is the fruits of our labor both of our labor both of our strengths are being put in that basket and nothing is more powerful to me than to have that unity put into that basket knowing that my strength is being added to my husband's strength which is going to be added to the strength of this church right we're all connected And when you look at what this helper means right here, that's really the epitome of what that means, that we are here to provide strength, to provide adequate um, unity within the church, within our brothers and sisters, and that's why Eve was created. So let me tell you about my practical experience of this. Um, I'm a child of the 80s. I'm not, I'm I'm actually kind of happy about that. Good things came from the 80s, right? (laughs) 
But um, I went to school and I was uh, got my business degree from the University of Denver, and academia was not my um, focus, let's just say, in college. You know, when we go to college, we have lots of focuses. Academia was not mine. In fact, when I went to go get my master's degree, the professor said, you know you're going to have to take six more credits because your undergraduate average is so low. I don't understand. You seem like you're pretty intelligent. What happened? And, you know, I'm like, wasn't a focus, right? It was like a four-year paid vacation, actually, is what it was. So when I graduated, which, I, you know, I got a degree, but when I graduated, I was not every company's epitome of who they wanted for their employee. And so I didn't get recruited right out of college, and it was a recession, so I had to struggle through retail. Finally, my uncle from Houston, Texas, he was a CEO of a pipe threading plant, he asked me to come to Houston to fulfill this position that he had in his company. He had this man that he wanted to promote, but the man, in some ways, didn't even have a high school degree. But he had a lot of talents as far as running a, a group of men. But he needed help with someone, he needed help of someone that had the administrative abilities to make sure that the whole plant was in compliance with their safety policy, with their API, which is the American Petroleum Institute standards. And then at that time, ISO 9000 was coming out where you had to have a quality standard. And he needed someone to run that part in the plant. Well, I was the only woman out of 40 men. I think it was like 40. might have been, I don't know, it seemed like there were an awful lot of them. But I was... <laughs> In the office with all these men, the only way to go to the bathroom was like a quarter mile down the road where they had a women's bathroom. It was, I was alone among men, and this was my first experience in my job. And it was hard because here I am, the CEO's niece. I'm a college graduate. I'm this 20-year-old woman telling them what to do. And um, found some barriers, but after two years... Um, I found that this group of men valued my experience. They valued my expertise. I felt good about that. I provided strength to this organization in my own way. And I felt fulfilled. I felt good. I felt like I was using my talents. I was finally maybe realizing why an education was important. And um, I felt good about this experience. But they closed the plant and they sold it. So I moved back to Pueblo. And at that time, I met... Uh, my first husband and uh, knew that I was in love with this guy and I was going to marry him. And he wanted to take me to his church. And this was a small church. And we went to this church and this is what I see, an angry pastor. <laughs> so I walk into this church. It's like I was going back to the 1940s. You had wooden pews and um, angry looking people. Not that the 40s all included angry looking people, but you know what I mean. And there was this angry pastor behind this pulpit, and he started preaching, and I could not believe it. He was preaching about how women was the downfall of the church. They were going to continue to be the downfall of the church. And men, if you don't keep your women in order, they're going to bring in the Antichrist, and the tribulation's going to come, and it's going to again be the fall of women. I was sitting there in the view going, you've got to be kidding me. I did not want to go back to that church. And needless to say... Um, our relationship developed until we got married, and we started going to a different church. And uh, it was kind of the start of the downfall. His parents were supported. They were missionaries supported by this church with the angry pastor. And um, because we went to a different church, my husband was, um, what do you call it, churched. I'd never heard of that. That actually is a verb where they bring this whole group of men to your house, and they look at you, and they say, we are churching you. 
You are no longer allowed to come into our church. You cannot do communion with our church. You, um, you know, it's just, it's this horrible disgrace. And so I was seen by his parents as the woman who tempted him away from the um, ultimate truth, which was their denomination. So that's how our marriage started. But you know what? We didn't learn. We went right from there into the frying pan with another pastor who um, also was against women, which was clothed in a little bit nicer package. (laughs) So, you know, a lot of times you have the same attitude, but repackaged. And so here I am in this church, and you have, again, this angry pastor who doesn't look angry, but if you look at the underpinnings of the organization, you can find that that's a pretty angry pastor. Um, but I was told, in order to be a good wife, you have to submit to your husband. You have to not speak in church. You have to do your service. So you need to um, uh, make sure that the meals are provided. You need to do all of the um, wifely duties. And you're only elevated in the church if your husband is elevated in the church. So then you have the pastor standing at the pulpit and he's saying, I'm so proud of my wife. Look at my Proverbs 31 woman right here. And he shows his wife, right? Well, in the backstory, this pastor had called me because I was a manager of a company and asked me if I could employ his wife. So I saw the other side. I saw the woman that was there at work complaining you know, I saw a different side of this. But anyway, so he's, he's promoting his wife. He's putting that Proverbs 31 um, piece up there on what women should do. It's kind of a checklist, right, that we just love to have. We're supposed to have it all together, right? We're supposed to, the house is supposed to be correct. The kids are supposed to be in line. The, the, somehow the money is supposed to be managed correctly, all this stuff, and even when you, when you research Proverbs 31, you find out really it's not really, and some, there is some controversy, and many people believe that they're not even talking about a woman in there. They're talking about wisdom. So making women be in the standard, it's like way up here. So what happened in this church is you had, the men had their men time, the women had their women time, and quite frankly, I don't relate to these women. I really don't. I can't sit still. I have a really hard time sitting still. So if we sit and contemplate at home, I'm like, oh, holy cow, I can't sit this long. I can't contemplate. You know, I I really felt like a failure. And the only way I felt like I could be elevated in that church was to bully my husband at home and to manipulate him so that he becomes the best elder in that church as possible. Because if he came, became the best elder, then I'm going to be lifted up with him, and I'm going to be able to communicate with these women that are higher than, I don't know. You know what I mean? So, um, needless to say, we had a barren marriage. Totally barren marriage. Now, we had Gabby. I'm not talking about that marriage. That barren, but we had a barren marriage. There was nothing at home. And so when I seek to have some marriage counseling, we, of course, called the pastor in for marriage counseling, right? His attitude was, well, Jackie, you're the problem. You're a nag. You're really a nag. And actually, your husband's not taking control because you wouldn't be a nag if he was stronger. So what you guys need to do is you need to pray more. Jackie, you just need to keep your mouth shut and you need to read the Bible more. Okay, that's practical, right? 
So the only thing I knew how to do was keep my mouth shut. So actually, I shut down my personality. I shut down my being and who I was. So our marriage was a wasteland. And you'd like to blame the, the husband on that. Are you kidding me? I was just as bad. I was bitter. I was resentful. I hated my life. I did not have a relationship in the church with women that I could relate to. And it was a mess. So needless to say, um, and well, needless to say, my ex-husband came to me and said, you know what, I want a divorce. And he actually ended up, it was because he had another relationship with another woman that was actually feeding his needs. And that's where the state of marriage is in some of these churches are, right? So at this point, I am broken, I am humiliated, I am confused, I am totally void of who I am. I, am. I have no clue where I belong in church. And, you know, I don't think it's an accident when Aaron came along because he's the one that took over that church. And he completely shut down things, and he called it a new day. And I don't think it was an accident that it was called New Day Church because his attitudes, his beliefs, everything that this church has stood on has nothing to do with that former pastor. has nothing to do. Um, but that didn't cause, I mean, I'm still broken, right? I've got a, and it's interesting, when I was thinking about this, I realized that my daughter was five years old, my son was five months old, which the number of five means grace. I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, so what I would do at night, and keep in mind, I'm a twin, and so growing up a twin's interesting. Um, you're a set, Right? So not even people really know your name sometimes. You're just a twin. So they call you by twin. And you answer by two names. I'm either Jamie or I'm Jackie, and I'm just going to answer because what's the point? You know? <laughs> so they're looking at me and twin. So a lot of times I feel like a set or I feel like invisible to a, to a person. I don't feel like a whole person sometimes when you're, when you're a twin. And... Um, so here's the state I'm in, and, and guys, I'm not alone. There are women out there in this state. They are divorced. They feel humiliated. They feel like a failure. They feel like they are carrying on the image of Eve that she has carried through generations and generations, right? And if you are divorced in a church, you don't have the covering of a man. Are you kidding me? You have no way to lift yourself up to the Proverbs 31 woman. You're a failure in that. You couldn't keep your house in order, Right? The only thing that kept me coming to church was Aaron had this, you just felt it with Aaron. You felt like there is hope, there is a new day. So at night what I would do is I would take my kids, i put them to bed, and after that I would just lay on the floor and cry. Just cry. And one night I'm laying on the floor and crying and I hear this small voice. And it was, Jackie, I see you. Jackie, you're valuable. Jackie, I have a life for you. I have a new day for you. I have a new purpose for your life. Don't give up. And I had never spoken to God before because you know how I related to God? was through the covering of a man, right? Through a covering of a man. So when I saw God, it wasn't me that saw God. I was relating to my husband. He was my God, right? And I was not happy with that God, <laughs> right? So God started talking to me and through years and years, not, well, it's only been like 15 years, but over that time, I don't even recognize the woman that I was then. I don't even recognize who she was. I am not that same person. 
I'm not in the same occupation. I'm not in the same, I'm in something that I really feel that I was meant and born to do. And that's what we want for our people. So let's look at where this began with women and where this began with this fight that women have to become part of our church. This came when Eve sinned, right? And after Eve sinned, we all know the story, she hid herself from, from God and, and they realized that they were different, male and female. And God said to them, and he gave this, um, uh, this thing to the, to the serpent and it's in Genesis So I'm going to read it to you. It says, So the Lord God said to the servant, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel, meaning women will strike his or man will strike his heel. So during this time, right after the fall, right after Adam ate, right after she saw... God and and they realized they were naked. There was enmity between Satan and the woman. And can I say that after that, all Eve was looking for was deliverance. That's all she was looking for after that. But not Satan. Satan was looking for retribution. He was looking for revenge. He was looking to put that enmity between himself and woman. And he used our culture and our people in order to do that. So let's look at this. Let's look at uh, misogyny, because that's a word that we have um, in, our, in our world today. And for those that did, I didn't know what it meant. I think the only time I knew what it was when I went into counseling. But it simply means the hatred, disgust, or dislike of women. Uh, sociologist Michael Flood said, Though most common in men, misogyny also exists and is practiced by women against other women in themselves. It is an ideology or belief system that has existed for thousands of years and continues to place women in subordinate positions with limited access to power and decision-making. So let's look at where this is today. Women make 47% of the workforce but get 22.5 less in wages than men. Women with education or professional positions make 27.5 less than their male counterparts. So in a lot of cases you think, oh, it's because they're not educated. It's not true. A lot of women are educated, but yet they still make less even when they're educated than other men. Women will work three years longer than men to become promoters of principals in school. A study shows a strong link to gender bias in any other cause. This hit me because even in our schools here in Pueblo, most of our principals in the high school are men. The highest paid principals in our district are high school principals. And the reason they promote men is because they don't think that women can handle the heavy discipline problems that we need in our high schools. It's gender bias. Worldwide, women account for two-thirds of all adult illiteracy. And 95% of illegally trafficked organs, which come to Europe, by the way, come from women donors, most from Middle Eastern countries where women have no say over their bodies. And this is today. Where did this start from? Let's talk about the Greeks. Greek uh, philosophy has a huge impact on future generations, and it still does today. In the education system, when you're in high school, you are required to read the Iliad, right? However, when I got out of college and when I was in business and when I was in teaching, did I ever say, oh, the Iliad said this, so therefore I can 
do we ever use that? Do we ever say, oh, yeah, I can use the Iliad. This will work when, right? But yet we're required to read it. Actually, I've gotten more out of Shakespeare on what to do with my life than I have over what the Iliad was written about. But yet we're still required to read it. Um, all seventh graders are, are given Greek mythology. Why? Really, why? I, I know we can justify it and say, well, you have to have Greek mythology in order to understand the English classics. Why do we need to know the English classics? Right? Yeah. How about learning something about Jesus and the Bible? Because that's in the English classics, right? But no, we're going to teach you the Greek myths because we want you to understand the English classics. So Greek philosophy is alive and well today. Even in our marriage ceremonies, when we have the father come up, and this is endearing, don't get me wrong, I like this, but when you have a marriage assembly and you have the bride there, the pastor asks, who gives this bride, right? Where did that come from? Greece came from Athens. The reason it, it, the man had to give permission to give the, the woman away, they had to attest to the Athenian heritage that this woman had. They had to be Athenian citizens in order for the children to be Athenian citizens. That's why you have two witnesses in marriages. Because they want it was a transfer of property. Okay? And we still have it in our wedding today and we think, oh, sweet, dad's giving me away. Right? I mean, it's still enduring, but that's where it came from. So how did the Greeks view women? And here's the thing that's interesting is when we teach kids in our educational system about Greek philosophy, we leave this part out. I think that's interesting, but let's expose it. This is how the Greeks thought about women. Girls were kept in the home until they were teenagers and then transferred to another home for the sole purpose of bearing children. They were property. The hope was to have male children and generally only one girl was accepted. If more than one child was born, they were exposed on the street to die or to be picked up by others for the purpose of slavery or prostitution. That's how they valued their women. In fact, their um, whole idea of how women came about was that Zeus was angry at man, so he brought women to earth to, to uh, make their life, to get even. <laughs> Wives cannot socialize outside the home or with their husbands, friends, or associates, even if entertaining in their own home. They were not allowed to talk to their brothers, their uncles. They were not allowed to talk to men. Wives could not leave the home for errands. They were stuck in the home. Here's Plato's opinion on women. It is only males who are created directly by the gods and are given souls. Those who live rightly return to the stars, but those who are cowards or lead unrighteous lives may with reason be supposed to have changed into the nature of woman in the second generation. This downward progress may continue through successive reincarnations unless reversed. In this situation, obviously, it is only men who are complete human beings and can only hope for ultimate fulfillment. The best a woman can hope for is to become a man. Aristotle. We all revere Aristotle in our education. Aristotle believed that men supplied the seed for reproduction. In the seed was everything needed for a new being. The woman was only the nourishment of the seed, and therefore women were of lower intelligence and unworthy. In fact, they actually compare uh, women as a pot with soil. So that's all we were there for. 
Um, the Stoics were worse, and they were, that was the third generation of philosophy under Plato and Aristotle. I didn't put a lot on the, the Stoics. And actually, you know what's interesting is when I was searching the Internet, Stoic, the, the philosophy of Stoics, are starting to have a resurgence. So that's, that'll be interesting to see in future. Let's look at the Jewish, because we think, okay, that's the Greeks. But here's the deal. You had um, Alexander the Great. He conquered the world. The only civilization that believed in equality for women was the Egyptians. And the problem with the Egyptians is they've never heard, they couldn't outthink the Greeks. The Greeks, all they sat and did was think and philosophize and write it down. The Egyptians, when the Greeks would bring up their arguments, they would just look at them and say, what? (laughs) They didn't have an argument for it. And so they thought, man, you guys sound smart, so we better believe you. And so they began to treat their women poorly as well. In fact, we see this today, don't we? We look at our professors, we look at our teachers, we look at uh, experts on TV talking about things in our world, and we're like, ooh, they sound smart, let's follow in line. We're losing our whole generation of people in college for this. They listen to their professors, they walk into the college with one view, come out, and you don't even recognize them because the uh, professors have totally re-established their brain, Right? And we as a church have not even defended that because we're like, oh, people ask us something um, and challenge our views, and we don't know how to respond. We're kind of like the Egyptians, so we better kind of start thinking about that. Um, But the Jewish were the same way. They have um, also been influenced by the Greek, and actually throughout time the Jewish have had traditions that have been anti-women. But what came out the most was the Mishnah, and it was also first generation. It was set, or first century. It was a set of rules and traditions that were built upon, or it wasn't first generation, first century. It came from a different time. But they were built upon the teaching of scripture designed to preserve the teaching of the Jew. So basically, you had the Torah, and then you had the commentary around it that says, okay, if you want to understand the Torah, this is what you've got to believe. Um, in the Mishnah, the women were simultaneously isolated from access to public authority and power and from the communal, spiritual, and intellectual substance of men that was available to men. Philo stated that women was the beginning of evil. The female wasn't just weaker, but more wicked and easily deceived. Therefore, he saw it as fitting that men should rule over everything good, but women over everything vile. Good news is Jesus came to redeem Adam and Eve, which is clear in his actions. So when we look at first generation, I mean first century, you've got the Greek philosophy that's going on. You've got the Jewish philosophy. It's all against women. Women should not be seen, should not be heard. Women have no value in this culture. And here you have Jesus come on the scene. Here's what he does. We look in Luke 8, 1 through 3. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, which is kind of funny because I think of Jesus walking around and he's got his entourage. I've always thought of the twelve just following him everywhere he goes, right? But I never knew this. Um, Also with him were women who had been cured of evil spirits and disease. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons have come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. 
So, you know, it's easy to think, oh, all these women were falling around because he's got to eat. We've got to make meals. We've got to clean up after him. But that's not what the scripture says. It says they were supporting him out of their own means, meaning financially. So these women were following him around. Keep in mind, this is first century living. Women weren't supposed to be out of the home. They weren't supposed to talk to men. And here they're following 12 men around, right? That was revolutionary. You can imagine. It was probably a spectacle when they saw Jesus come into town with 12 disciples and this group of women that were coming, not as servants or slaves or prostitutes, but as women of honor who had dutiful careers. They were wives, right? Here we go to another, another example in Luke. Now, remember, Luke was written to the Greeks. So you can imagine the Greeks reading about these women that Jesus um, had as disciples, right? And it was purposely done, I believe, so that you could counter that. Aaron talked last week about the leaven, so that you can add leaven into the culture, so that things begin to change, right? So let's look at Luke 10:38 through 42. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, He came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things. But few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. When I was in the uh, church where women were supposed to know their place in the home, this verse ticked me off, right? Couldn't stand this verse, didn't want to look at it, actually really spoiled me on the whole book of Luke. I could not understand this. Here, Martha, she was doing her wifely duty. She was doing her household duties, and here's Martha, she's lazy, And God's defending this lazy woman. I'm working so hard to be this Proverbs 31 woman. And you've got Mary that God's excusing or Jesus is excusing. What's that about, right? So when you ask the pastor about that from that church, um, he would say, well, you have to understand that intimacy with Jesus is more important than your wifely work. So you need to actually add more to your time now to meditate in the morning because that's what you got to do before you make the beds and do all your other stuff at home. I was like, oh, gosh, you know, another thing on that Proverbs 31. (laughs) But when we look at this closer, this is not about contemplation. This is not about meditation early in the morning. In ancient Mishnah and first century context, to sit at the feet of a rabbi and to drink in his words meant to become a disciple and study to become a Jewish scholar. It was only reserved for men. Martha's Martha's beef wasn't about the work that she had to do. Her beef was the fact that her sister was a woman taking a man's place. It was misogyny right there. And Jesus was correcting her and saying, this is no longer going to be the standard in which Christian women are going to be in, or women are going to be in the future. So Jesus actually was rebuking Martha's attitude about women, I believe, and not telling her that, oh, you know, the dishes are already done, and it's time to be intimate with me. So that's not what he was saying. He was saying enough. It is time for women to be at the feet of a rabbi and to realize their place in um, our new age, 
right? But this is the, probably the, the strongest ep, um, example I saw in Luke. Now, remember, this is for Greeks, right? So Luke 13, 10 through 13. Let's look at this one because this is really interesting. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, You are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Praised God, right? Um, So it continues. Indignant indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all of his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. I remember reading this and thought, okay, so big deal. He healed a woman. It is a big deal because when you look at how the synagogues were built during that time, because archaeologists have unearthed these synagogues and they can see exactly how they were used, women who went to the synagogues were not in the public sanctuary. They were up. They had to climb up a stairs to a back room that was shielded. It had a wall in front of the, the uh, men. And they had to sit there, and they could not be seen, they could not be heard. So when Jesus calls this woman forward, can you imagine? There's this woman behind the wall. He calls her forward. She has to walk down the stairs. She has to walk into the sanctuary of man in front of man, where Jesus straightens her from being bent. Right? That's huge (laughs) in first century. That's bringing a woman out to be seen. Then Jesus says that she is the daughter of Abraham. Right. So this is the first time a woman has been mentioned as the daughter of Abraham. What made us sons or guys sons of Abraham was circumcision. Women can't be circumcised. So men were completely set apart to have covenant through circumcision, not women. So to be called daughters of Abraham included women in all the promises that were offered to the daughter, the sons of Abraham. And Jesus had said that on purpose. So you can imagine, Jesus was good at just pushing the envelope on there, right? You can imagine now why some of the Sadducees were angry at what Jesus was trying to accomplish in the church. Um, So this is a symbolic that Satan, enough. Satan, your enmity between women has ended. These are daughters of Abraham. These are my fold. This is my creation. And this was, was the beginning of women's deliverance or the deliverance of Eve. Let's look finally at Galatians 3, 23 through 29. Because this goes on through the disciples of Jesus and through his apostles. So if we go there, it says, Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come could, would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. 
So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to his promise. So it says in here that we are all one in Christ. Well, this is kind of funny because if I'm a woman in the church and I have the covering of a man, are we not saying that we are being, that the man actually can cover Christ? Right? Are we not saying that a woman, if she is submissive to a man in the church, that we are actually making Christ submissive to man? If we are one in Christ? Does that seem like it's out of order to you? So let's look at today, okay? Um, I looked at the Barna Group, and the Barna Group, they just do uh, surveys that, that measure trends of people throughout our nation, okay? They are not Christian. They are a secular organization that just goes around and asks people questions in order to identify what's going on in the world. A lot of people like politicians, um, marketing companies, use their information in order to sell a product or sell an idea. This is what they say about women in our church. This is the state of women today in our church. In 1993, only 24 adults were in church. That's men and women. And that, that means that only two, let's see, what is that? Two out of ten people had not been to church or were not going to church in some forms. At that time, 57% of the unchurched were men and 44 of the unchurched were women. And I could attest to this because when I grew up in the 70s and 80s, mom took us to church. Dad didn't go to church at that time. And there were, primarily in our church, there were mostly women, right, with their children. Thank God for women, right? 2003, 33% of adults are unchurched. 40% of the unchurched were women. So we're still kind of... Um, they're at 40%, but look what happened to the men. 60% of the men started going to church. 2015, 45% of adults are in church. So we're seeing a downward, a downward trend in kid, people going to church. And I even see this in my classroom because when you're trying to explain something in literature and you're like, well, you guys know who Jesus is, right? I would have more and more every year say, never heard of him, which is appalling to me. Although it's opportunity, because then I can say, well, let me tell you who Jesus is. And we could say that was educational purposes. They needed to understand the passage. 45% of adults were unchurched. But look at this. 46 of the unchurched were women. So we see as the number of percentage of men go up, the lesser percentage go down in women. I think that's interesting. So they, they thought so too. So this corporation wanted to figure out why are women not going to church anymore? Here's what they found. 7% have never been to church. So most of the women in our society have been to church. It's probably because their moms drug them to church every single Sunday, right, with them. Um, 36% say, I've been to church and it's been in the last week. 10% say, I've been to church but it's in the past month. 9% in the past six months. And 38% not in the past six months. So they probably have only gone once a year. Okay. That's interesting. So they ask him why. Um, they decided, and if you look at this, it's the same thing I said, but they were, would rather at one point they decided that church was no longer for them. 
So we decided as a group of women that church was no longer for them. Why? It's all a matter of priorities. Let's look at this. 5% say it's because of their work or career. That's not a very big percent. You would think it's because women are at work. And if you look at a lot of the Christian sites, the conservative sites on um, the Internet, guess what they're blaming? The fact that women have joined the workforce. But that's not what we're finding in surveys. It's not because women are able to go out of the home and work. That's not the downfall. Look at this. Personal time for, or for personal development is 10%. They'd rather do that at home than at church. But this is what I thought was interesting. 68% said that the reason they don't go to church is because they want to work on their family relationships. I think it's interesting, right? 6% on friendships and 11% said that um, they'd rather go to church. So what we're looking here is we're looking at women's value is high on relationship. Huge on relationship, but they don't think they can find that at church. And I truly believe it's because they are looking at women from the church, not our church, I don't think, but the women from our church who are better, who are upset, who are angry, who are doormats in society. We have so many women from churches out there who are bitter because their husband's not the pastor. When I was in a church and you had the, the pastor hold up his, his wife as the epitome of women, that was the only place you could advance, is if your husband advanced. So then you're looking at your husband saying, man, you're kind of a loser because you're not an elder of the church. So you're my personal project. So I'm going to make you my personal project, and you are going to go to every single, single men's meeting. You're going to pray at home. You're going to um, do all these great things because I want you to be an elder because then I'm elevated, right? And guess what? I am not going to expose anything you do at home. So I don't care how you act at home. I don't care what you do or whatever because I'm not going to say anything because if I say anything in the church that we're in prob, we're having trouble, or you're living a immoral life, I'm not going to say anything about that because then your elevation of elder is going to fall. And I don't want to risk that. So I am going to go to church with a mask over my face saying, aren't I the happy wife? Aren't I the happy, happy parent? Isn't my home great? I'm not going to invite you to my house because it's a mess, right? And, and so I come in with this facade of who I am because I am playing church. And my husband is playing church, and I have no relationship with God because I can't even approach Christ unless a man is standing in the way, and I'm not happy with him right now. And that's how a lot of our women are today that these women are seeing, and they're like, mm, no, thank you. <laughs> in fact, you have a lot of women who don't even want to marry men in the church because they're afraid they're going to be subdued or dominated. So they will go and they will seek out men or the bad boys, because, boy, they sound like fun, don't they? Right? So we're even losing our women. Keep in mind, this survey was, was given to Generation Xers and Millenniums, which are those kids that were born after 1970s. They're starting to see, th- see things in a normal way. They're not willing to play church. If you look at these kids that we're raising today, and I know a lot of people complain about Common Core, And there are some things I see in Common Core, the educational system. I don't know if you guys know the national standardized standards that we teach our kids. And I'm not not afraid of Common Core. Let me tell you what we're raising right now. We are raising kids who 
who are learning to think critically. So we are raising a whole group of kids that will question, that will think critically, that look at primary sources, that research, that have Google at the axis of their fingertips, that can do all these things, and yet we're going to stand there as a church and say, this is the way it is. And when they question why, we're going to say, because the word of God is absolute authority, and this is how we see it. Do you think we're going to grab any of our young girls? Absolutely not. This trend is going to continue to go in the unchurched, and we are going to lose all of the women that we, for generations, have tried to to bring into the church. So here's some continued findings. To what extent do you feel you receive emotional support from people at your church or synagogue? 17% 17% say, of women say that they receive emotional support. 23 somewhat, I think they're just being nice. Um, not too much, 17%, but look at this. 43% of women from 19, that were born in 1970 on up say that they are not finding emotional support in their church. It's because we're dismissing them. We're dismissing their thoughts. We're dismissing their feelings. We've got better women because really in those churches, Aren't we as women supposed to bring up our young women? How are we supposed to do that if one, we're not being, uh, we're not being able to be fruitful? We're not finding our destiny because our destiny is denied from us in the church. So how are we supposed to teach our young women if we haven't even found the destiny ourselves? All we have to offer them is bitterness, um, know your place, you know? I looked on the internet and what I found was the woman manifesto. Which, you know what, why are we signing manifestos? Don't we have the word of God? Do we need to recreate the word of God and, and sign it for manifestos and then count how many people that we've signed it? Oh, we're right, because 900 people have signed our manifesto, right? And you look at these manifestos and it's like, we will know our place in the home. We will have um, order in our home. Our children, we will focus on our children, which is a good thing. We will keep our house in order. We will be obedient to our husband. This is the manifesto. And it's packaged to be delivered to the millennials. Because when you go through counseling, you're like, this is what the millennials are seeing, and this is how you advertise them. This is being packaged by these women. And when I researched the women that put it together, they're all leaders' wives. And I don't know about you, but I cannot, it is hard for me to relate to some of these women, right? I go and meet some of these pastor wives from the conservative churches, and I'm like, we have nothing in common. When I sit in, in school and I have a gang-affiliated mother come into my office to talk about their child, I find more connection with that woman than I find with this other woman in the church who's given me this facade of who she is. At least the gang mother that comes in, she tells me her problems and her struggles. It's out there. And we can have real conversation. When you talk to some of these women in the church, they don't want to expose themselves. If they expose themselves, they expose their husband, and there's too much to risk. But if we look at the original purpose of women, it was to add strength side by side with men. So think about how strong our marriages can be when we say, you know what, I got your back. You're struggling with addiction, I've got your back. You're struggling with um, thoughts of weakness, you're struggling with you can't do it, you're struggling with feelings of failure in your job, I've got your back. I can provide the support that you need during this hard time. You don't have to lord over me. You don't have to 
try to make your problem, my problems your problems. Because you know what? I'm strong. I can deal with that. I've got a relationship with Jesus. I can meet with him. I can talk to him. He can really hear me because I am not invisible. And I am providing strength in the marriage. I am not providing a burden for that husband. I'm not enslaving them on you better do the right thing in order for me to be um, elevated in the church. How ridiculous, right? It really, it really truly is. Here we are. You, you, when you get married in this philosophy, you're actually telling your husband, welcome to slavery, man. Right? I'm going to enslave you. You're going to enslave me. And we're going to love it. And we're going to be miserable for I don't know how long until we end up in divorce or until we end up just succumbing and saying this is how life is. And I'm not saying all marriages in the church are like that, but I'm saying this is the philosophy that we've set up as a, as a standard for our married couples, right, and for our women. So when God said, be fruitful and multiply, he wasn't saying, women, your only place is to have children because, you know, really, not everybody has children. Are they disobedient to God? Are they being, oh, God, I lived a whole life and I didn't make your first commandment of being fruitful and multiply because I didn't have a child. Is that the kind of life God wanted us? I really believe that when God said, be fruitful and multiply, he was talking, be fruitful in what you do in your labors. Be fruitful in the new ideas that you generate. Be fruitful in finding your destiny. Be fruitful in the giftings that I've given you. How wasteful is it for us, for God, to give us giftings and we're not able to use them? That's waste. That is absolute waste. And that's sad when you have a woman that may have great speaking potential or have great abilities to organize or to do finances or to provide strength and we say, oh, you're disqualified. We don't think so. That's a waste. And we are wasting a whole generation of people and we are finding that we are not applicable to the next generation. That's waste. We are looking at those people and we can't even, I'm I'm saying we can as a church, but the, the church out there is not responding to the needs that we see that these women have. They want to find their destinies. They're going to critically think. They want to be strong. And we're saying, oh, I'm sorry, you want to be strong, but wait, you need to get married. So then we're forcing our women into inappropriate marriages to inappropriate people, and the only reason they're getting married is the way they can find their destiny be brought forth, right? And we're going to do that. Really? And when I say we, I mean, you know, I, I don't believe our church does that. So I wouldn't be here, actually, if, if our church had the same philosophy. So I just say, thank God. Thank God we have a start here. Thank God that we have people who are of like mind that says, you know what? We're not going to do this anymore. I am not going to go on the Internet and sign a manifesto. I don't need to sign a manifesto because I have a personal relationship with Christ. And anytime anybody ever tries to argue with me about the place of women, you know what I'm going to hear? I'm going to hear God's voice in my ear when he said, Jackie, you are valuable. Jackie, you are, I see you. Because you know what? I was the bent woman that was called in front of Jesus who said, I will now make you straight. I will now bring you up and I will redefine your life. I am that woman that came down from the synagogue and needed the spirit removed from her so that I can be made straight. And I'm not the only one that is out there that, that had that or that needs that today. And you know how Aaron was talking last Sunday about it is our job to bring leaven into our culture. 
I think now more than ever, we need to bring that leaven into our culture, into the Christian culture and say, you know what, enough is enough. We need to realize that these are trappings put on to us by the Greeks. These are trappings putting on, put on us from the Jewish uh, philosophy. This is not what Jesus intended. This is not what God intended. And we need to start standing in our place. And here's the deal with women. Women are able to say, oh, yeah, man, you be in charge of me, man, because we're lazy, right? It's easy for us not to take our place. We don't have to work at that. It's easy for me to go down a checklist and say, okay, I got to do the fridge today and I got to clean the house and, oh, yeah, I can vacuum the floor. That's easy to do. But it's a little bit harder, isn't it, to take our place and become godly women for Christ, right? That means we're really going to have to give something and that's a little bit of intimacy with Christ. We're going to have to go down our knees. We're going to have to stand in the gap for our husband, right? I have to realize that I'm manipulating my husband to become a person that maybe his destiny was not even intended to be. My first husband, you know what, I don't think his destiny was to be an elder of the church, but yet I was circumventing that destiny because of my internal needs. And that's wrong. And it's really easy to say, you know what, you want the divorce, you loser. I don't blame him, right? Don't we all want to meet our destiny? So I'm calling... I mean, we're just a few here today, but I truly believe that it's the voice that's going to be heard over our next generation. And it's the voice that our girls, if we can keep them, are going to continue to stand forward. And it's also off the shoulders of women that we have had in generations and generations who have hoped and prayed and believed that there is possibly something more for them than what they had. And so I just call, I make a call today that you guys, we do this. And I think that we're all in agreement because we're from this church. But <laughs> when you look on the Internet, it's, it's, it's with, from the women more from the men. So we need to stand up against that.